Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. We start with the COVID travel rules especially as they apply to vaccines. So if you were thinking of going on vacation or doing any kind of travel to the United States, what kind of vaccinations will you require? Uh, The United States now getting set to announce new rules on this. We're expecting this in the next few weeks, uh, expecting them to require travelers to be fully vaccinated. But which vaccines are they going to accept? And what if you've got those mix and match vaccines like I do? I got the uh, AstraZeneca first shot and Moderna the second shot. Will the United States allow that? Will they recognize that and let you travel into the United States? A lot of people saying, look, Give us the third shot. Give people a third dose so they can travel if this is what the United States says they are going to do. Have a listen to this. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry on that point. When the U.S. border opens, because I think that's where most people are concerned yeah, yeah. about, and, and rightly so. When If it still looks like it's going to be a problem, then absolutely we'll be providing people with what they need. Um, but right now, it, it, it just is not... Um, we don't want people to get an extra dose that they don't need. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Claire Newell. Claire is our go-to travel expert. She is the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Mike. There's lots of confusion over what's happening uh, at the moment when I, with respect to travel, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm one of the confused ones. So let's see if we can uh, let's see if we can figure this out here. So let's talk about the vaccine travel rules, like as they exist right now so let's say you want to travel to the united states for example okay so let's say you want to go i don't know arizona florida or even just across the border to seattle what are the rules right now i don't think there's any vaccine rules right now right that's right yeah so i actually visited my daughter who's studying uh in arizona and i went in september I, you do not have to prove your vaccination at the moment. Right. But the confusion is that the United States came out last week and said that sometime in early November, you will need to uh, show proof of vaccine to travel, as well as what you already have to, which is uh, a negative antigen test. Now, that would be the mainland U.S., And it's different if you're going to Hawaii. And I know so many people from BC love Hawaii, but to go to Hawaii, it is different. You do need a PCR test, and then that has to be done by an approved lab. Normally, the airline that you're flying with will put you in touch with one of the right labs. And, And in most cases here in BC, it's either a Shoppers Drug Mart or a Life Labs. Right. Okay. And so the early November, well, that's coming up pretty darn quick, especially, especially for people who are trying to make travel plans. So I can understand the confusion on this. So what do you anticipate? Like, do you think the Americans will say, okay, you're required to be double vaccinated, which is what most people anticipate, but which vaccines will they accept? Yeah, this is the the, the big conundrum. The biggest yeah. question mark surrounds um, mixed doses. Yeah. And there's a lot of us. I am one of the 3.9 million Canadians who've received mixed doses of vaccines. And it's whether it's a combo of two mRNA vaccines or one with AstraZeneca. But what's 
So at the moment, um, you need what they say. Yeah, the U.S. is saying is that you need to have all of the recommended doses of the same COVID-19 vaccine. Oh. So those are Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca. Now, um, AstraZeneca double dose is fine. A lot of people are saying, well, I don't really. <laughs> um, and, and it is. It's the double dose. Um, sorry, it's the mixed dose of two mRNA vaccines, though, that people are I- still confused on. And there is no official word yet um, from the U.S. However, I did see that there are exceptions to the rule. And the CD has actually said that on its website, which I found that mixed doses of the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are acceptable in exceptional situations, such as oh. when the vaccine used for the first dose was no longer available. And even though it uh, says exceptional situations... A lot of large companies, so Royal Caribbean um, and uh, Celebrity Cruise Lines, for example, have now actually changed their their acceptance of that. And yeah. you, originally you weren't. It's just so in my mind, it's still that single dose of AstraZeneca with an with another like a Moderna or a, a Pfizer like I have. That's a problem. And as I understood it, though, Claire, I thought the Americans had not yet approved the AstraZeneca vaccine for use in the United States. Well, um, yeah, I think that's a lot of people are confused about that, but they are accepting that accepting that the agency laid out its current policy and it was it stated that clearly. So that was really good to know. And it's just at the moment, this whole um, CDC not recognizing mixed vaccines. And I do understand what's happened here. They have not used AstraZeneca domestically in the United States, so they don't have the the data and so i'm hoping that canada is a trusted partner enough a close enough ally as well as the uk uh that that have used it i mean germany italy france thailand a whole bunch of countries doled out these mixed vaccines including astrazeneca combos so i think that now the cdc just needs to see some of the data and the efficacy rates of it and then they'll make the decision i suspect that we'll know a lot more within the next couple of weeks mike yes yeah and it really is uh, bothersome for people who've received the mixed doses and i'm like you i'm in the same boat as you claire i've got the mixed dose i had the astrazeneca for my first dose and moderna for the second so I don't know what's going to happen yeah. with, with me on that one. I mean, you must be getting a ton of phone calls here from your customers wondering what's we going are. on. Yeah. People who are worried about having to cancel coming up to their final payments. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. And I really feel that if the U.S. doesn't budge on mixed vaccines come November, Canadians are, they need to have options. And we do yeah. know that four provinces, Quebec, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, they're offering third doses to people in their province who require it for travel. And I... I know that Dr. Henry has dug her heels in, and I know that she was talking to, on CKW, I think she was talking to Simi, um, saying that, you know, nope, not going to be offering a third doses, but there are going to be so many people in this province that are going to have to put pressure to, to see some change, because that is that will prevent people from going where they want to, if it's right. visiting friends or family or for work or whatever reason. I don't yeah, want to doc- one of those people. Dr. Henry is now open. She's opened the door just a little bit here, saying that if this continues to be a problem for people, then they'll will they'll do something about it. It's really not clear or firm exactly when a third dose might be offered to people for travel. I think they should make that clear. I mean, they should. 
I mean, look, I mean, it's not just people going on vacation, too. I mean, people have got business interests. They've got to, they've got to travel for their jobs. Uh, they've got to visit sick relatives, whatever, right? I mean, it's not just people going away on, on vacay. So now, my, you know, we need more information my, on this. Yeah, I, we do need more information. Yeah. And I, I really don't want people to have to have a third dose. I mean, goodness knows that's taking away from people around the, the world who are waiting for it. But yeah. Yeah, but let's cross our fingers. There's no question in my mind that the U.S., there's going to be a lot of money left on the table if they don't let people with mixed doses from places like the U.K., Canada, Germany, Italy, France. Those are places that put huge numbers of tourist dollars into the U.S. So my guess is, I mean, if I was a betting gal, which I'm not, but if I'm a betting (laughs) gal, I'm going to say that the U.S. will, will change this policy within the next two to three weeks. Okay, I hope you're right. And I hope British Columbia, if they, if the U.S. does sort of draw a line in the sand and say you can't have mix and match vaccines, I think British Columbia should offer the third vaccine for travelers. That, that's my opinion. Speaking to Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets, uh, Claire, what would you say when people call you and they're thinking about traveling again, do they ask, like, which countries are the safest for COVID? Like, which ones are the most safe to visit? Is that, an, is that like a... A it factor is. now for people? Of course, because yeah. you're not leaving it behind you. And I think it's really important. Uh, and there will be people, Mike, who are not ready to travel um, mm. for, for a while. But there are people who are looking for a getaway or to visit friends and family. And the uh, the rate of the vaccination distribution in a country, the infection rate at a destination, the protocols are, that are in place, all of that's really important into, in making a decision whether or not you want to travel there. And there are a couple of really great websites that you can look at. Uh, the the one that kind of comes to mind the most is iata.org. They have a destination tracker that will show you that information. The other one that I like is covidcontrols.co. And one that's uh, just come to my attention that I think is, and it's a Canadian-based site that will help people know what they need to do as far as testing requirements before quarantine, all of that type of information. If you do a Google search for the word Sherpa, um, Sherpa. you will be able to, to come up to this website. And it is so user-friendly and really helpful if you're looking at traveling in the next little while. Okay, that's a great tip. Claire, real quickly here while I've got you, this headline I saw this morning and it jumped out at me. I suspect this one caught your eye too. Deal alert. You can fly from (laughs) Vancouver to Toronto for $89 Canadian, including tax. So like, are there cheap flights out there right now? There are. It it is a cheap time anyway. So in the month of August, particularly the the last two weeks of August, first week of September, lots of movement across this country. A lot of people getting back to wherever they need to go, whether it's to university or back home from cabins and things like that. And so it's always busy. And then it's busy again in uh, the Christmas and over New Year's time period, of course. But in between, you can get some really cheap deals. And right now, domestically, there's a real price war going on with Air Canada, WestJet, and Flair Airlines. So Flair is the new gaming town that are really trying to take on the big airlines. And the big airlines are kind of almost matching some of these low fares. But we're talking about Vancouver to Toronto for under 100 bucks, including all taxes each way. You know, that's half the price that it normally is. It's like around four or $500 normally. And 
for 200 bucks, that's cheap to go across this country. So a lot of people are taking advantage of it, going and maybe seeing Niagara Falls. or um, There's also some cheap rates between Vancouver and Montreal. So nice. yeah, if you want to see our, our country, no better time to do it. That's for sure. There's not a lot of international travelers, even though Canada opened up to international fully vaccinated travelers on September 7th. Right. But they just have not been coming in droves. Okay, Claire, I know you've got your finger on the pulse of all these great deals. What's uh, what's your website again, if people want to check it out? It's travelbestbets.com, and there is a link on there to some of those other websites oh, that good. I mentioned if you are interested in travel. Great. Thanks for coming on, Claire. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the affordability crisis uh, we've got in housing in this city, in this region right now. I really feel for young people starting out, dreaming of getting into that first home, I know some young families are crammed into a condo, not ideal, but what else can people afford, especially in the city? Lots of people looking to the suburbs as an alternative. You know, that can be expensive, too, and you're facing a brutal work commute in some cases. How can we make this better? How can we get more affordable housing into this market in this region. This is a top priority for a lot of local governments in Metro Vancouver, and including my next uh, guest, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councillor. This is one of his top priorities, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councillor, thanks for coming on again. Mike, thanks for having me back. Okay, it was interesting to see the city of Vancouver this week, Dylan, uh, have a panel discussion on the future of affordable housing in the city. It's a top priority for a lot of municipalities, including in the city of Delta. What is the situation in Delta right now in terms of affordability in your, in your community? In Delta, it's very similar to the rest of Van- Metro Vancouver and a lot of major yeah. Canadian cities. I mean, the reality is that we've drastically underbuilt our cities when it comes to housing supply. Canada has the lowest number of housing units per capita in the G7, uh, and we're paying the consequences of it now. We can't afford to meet the existing demand for housing in Delta, uh, let alone the one million people that are going to be moving to our region, Metro Vancouver, in the next 20 years. So it's, it's a very serious problem, Mike. Okay, would you say that there's a supply issue then, that we need to build more homes for people that they can afford? We, we seem to be tackling every aspect of the issue instead of supply. We, we seem to be kind of afraid to, to talk about it, even though for me that seems to be the obvious solution. We put the, the tax on foreign buyers. You know, in this federal right. election, every, uh, you know, the two major parties talked about putting a ban on, on foreign buyers, and, and that's great. But the reality is uh, that's, that's a small aspect of a much larger problem. We don't have the supply uh, to meet the demand for housing. Uh, we've, we've put time capsules over the vast majority of the region in Metro Vancouver and locked them into single-family zoning with no yeah. opportunities for, for higher density, with no opportunities for transit-oriented development. Uh, and the reality is that we, we are, we, again, we cannot meet our existing supply, let alone the people that we know are going to be moving here in the years to come. Yeah, when you talk about that single-family zoning, I mean, this comes up a lot, and it, uh, it kinda, it's kind of a tough one for a local politician, right? Like, if you've got a neighborhood that with really nice detached houses, people love living there, I mean, are you saying that local council should come in and say, well, guess what, we're going to change the zoning here now, and now you're going to have, like, a townhouse complex on your street? Like, are you saying, like, the politicians have got to jam- have the jam to do that? Is that, what, is that the answer, or...? I think it's more about, you know, providing the type of housing that, that people want to live in. And, and single detached yeah. housing is, is an important part of the market, and it's always going to be. Uh, but you also got to be realistic. I mean, if you're living, uh, you know, 5 or 10 or 15 minutes from downtown Vancouver, I don't think that that's a necessary uh, realistic expectation for, for housing lifestyle. There's also a lot, you know, there's a lot in between 
sprawling single detached homes and really dense housing like something that you'd see at Metro Town. But there's this missing middle that we've talked about. I'll give you an example of some of the frustration that we received. You know, we do a lot of infill housing in Delta. That's where you take one large lot that has one house on it. You subdivide it into two. You have two smaller houses and what was previously a single detached lot. We had a two-lot split, which is what we call it, public hearing a couple of months ago. We had one resident come in opposition at the public hearing. Completely met all the, all the bylaws, all the official community plan. One resident came, made some you know, really uh, slanderous accusations about the arborist, essentially said that the arborist was lying in their report. Because of one resident, we, it took a two- to three-month delay for us to look into it before we finally approved it unanimously. Three-month delay because one resident came and approved it in, in opposition to a two-lot split. Wow. Okay. So you need to streamline that process to get stuff approved more quickly. We need to not right. just streamline. We need to overhaul the approval process. Yeah. I mean, we spend years working on these official community plans. You know, Vancouver is doing it right now with the Broadway area plan, for example. And then still when projects come along, we have to go through an additional rezoning process and an additional engagement process, even though that's work, that work has already been done. There is such yeah. a thing as over-consultation, which is what we do. we're very good at doing in local government. Yeah, I've spoken to people in the development business who they feel like they're slamming their head against the wall every day trying to get stuff approved and going through all, all the red tape that you're describing. Speaking to Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. And Councillor, I follow you on Twitter. I encourage people to do that, at Dylan Kruger BC on Twitter. And the other day, uh, you were tweeting about a housing project by the Squamish Nation, the Squamish First Nation. Now, this is interesting. They own, they own uh, some land around Vancouver, and because they're the First Nation, they're exempt from local zoning. So it gives them some freedom to do some different type of things, and I know you're very keen on, on the projects that they did there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a really exciting project. It's on the foot of the, the Broad Street Bridge. It's going to be 6,000 rental homes. It's all purpose-built wow. rental homes. And, and it's, it, I tweeted about it yesterday as part of, you know, National Truth and Reconciliation Day. And it, it's a great story of, you know, Indigenous nation taking uh, economic control of their own land. We can talk about that another time. But the exciting part from a housing perspective is just what you said, Mike. They're exempt from the city process. They're exempt from the consultation process. They had to do consultation with their own nation. But in terms of the general public, this thing is going to happen. And you just watch how fast those buildings are going to come up. It's going to shock us as Metro Vancouver residents, how fast it's going to come up. And with that one project, the, the Squamish Nation has put more purpose-built rental housing uh, units on the market than the city of Vancouver has done in the last three years. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Like 6,000 units. Man, that is a lot. Like, you were talking like high-density housing there, I guess, right? It's high-density housing, and that's, and that's the right place for it. It's, it's walking yeah. distance across the bridge to downtown, uh, it's very transit accessible. There's lots of, uh, you know, future plans for, for streetcar expansion. That's where you want to put your high-density housing. Right. And do you think that municipalities, okay, so here's a First Nation that is not encumbered by all that local zoning red tape, getting stuff done like that. you think that's an example of what, what other municipalities should be doing similar? What they should be doing, and the reality is that we, we as local municipalities have a disincentive towards doing it, right? That's the elephant in the room. We get elected by, by people. Uh, who, who are, are already residents, we don't have it in our mandate to consider, you know, the needs of, of future residents or of residents who would like to live in our community but can't afford to do so or don't have the, the supply available to them. So if municipalities, we have two options. We can either step up to the, the plate and start approving more housing, or we really need to look, you know, to the province. We're creatures of the province and have the province say, look, yeah. we need 
if we're going to be spending billions of dollars on new transit infrastructure projects in your city, you better be coming to the table with new housing supply. Uh, we can't be building right. more transit stations next to single-family home neighborhoods. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Do you think that they should build more affordable type of multifamily housing options that people can afford? Uh, maybe have higher density, maybe smaller footprints. I don't know, like coach homes, duplexes, fourplexes, row housing. Like I, I talked to a guy once about why do why do we not do more row housing? And I remember visiting relatives of mine in Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's where my dad is from. And people, everybody there was living in these row houses. And you don't really see that much of it here. I mean, do we, what about our uh, co-ops? You know, someone said to me today, we need more co-ops. Do we got to be starting to think outside the box and get some of these more, you know, multifamily affordable housing units built? Absolutely. And to your previous point, we can do that without changing the quote-unquote character of some of these established neighborhoods that are so important to people. We only legalized secondary suites in Delta about 15 years ago, and that's only because we lost in court. We were so resistant to doing it. Secondary suites, coach houses, uh, row houses are great options to provide that missing middle of density, which also creates a critical mass of people, which helps to sustain transit. It helps to sustain local businesses. There's a lot of spin-off benefits of having large amounts of people together in one area. And large, sprawling suburban municipalities are actually also one of the, the greatest contributors on a per capita basis to GHG emissions. So from an environmental perspective, it's better. It's, it's, it's having people close together is good for a lot of reasons, and you can do that while still retaining the character of communities that is so important to people. Sandra in North Vancouver, hi. Hi. Um, I'd like to see our governments, both federal and provincial, get back into the business of cooperative housing. We have lots of federal and provincial crown land. Um, we could have low-income families and upper-middle-income families all living in the same townhouse complex, and it doesn't come out of our tax dollars because it's the land that's already there. The governments can do low-income mortgages on these places, and people can have nice homes for a reasonable price. I started out in cooperative housing, and now I'm in in the housing market. I, I live in a nice home. So it's a good start for young families, and I don't know why they moved away from that. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Sandra. I think the co-op is a great option. Dylan, what do you think of that? I uh, totally agree with Sandra. I think those are amazing comments. And like I said earlier, I'm actually, I was really encouraged that in this federal election, all major parties came out with really substantive housing platforms. I think this is a bipartisan issue. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much funding other levels of government throw at the problem. Municipalities approve the housing. And it's the municipal approval process that's broken. And if we don't fix the process, we're not going to fix the housing crisis. Yeah. And so in order to get like a co-op housing built, what do you need to get something like that done? So even if it's government land, it's still got to come to the local municipality. If it's not zoned for that use, which it's probably not, it's got to go through a rezoning process, which can involve you know, months and sometimes years of public engagement and, uh, and, a, and a public hearing. Uh, and that's the red tape that makes it, and it actually reduces the affordability of these projects. The more money that government or housing operators have to spend on carrying costs and on the associated fees with these consultation processes reduces the, the level of subsidy that can be offered. So it's, it's a problem for mm. below market housing as well. Okay, Witt calling from Kelowna. Hi. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Good, good. Go ahead. Good, good. I kind of want to speak to the last person's comment as well. I actually run a housing co-op in Kelowna, and there's maybe eight or nine of them in the, the greater kind of Kelowna stretching to, like, Salmon Arm and Penticton area. Like, there's not enough. 
and you look in Vancouver and there's 250, 300 of them, there could be more. But I agree with that last caller. There needs to be more of them. I mean, and I won't say exactly how much we charge, but our three-bedroom townhouses, our row housing, they're under 1000 a month. You got to wow, think about yeah. that in Kelowna, like a three bedroom townhouse in Kelowna is probably 22, 2,500 right now. You know, that's a, that's a third of that price. So for a family that's trying to save money and break into that housing market down the line, or a family that just wants to live in co-op housing, you know, it's, it's totally different than the RTA. It's, it's a totally different set of rules, but I agree. We need to build hundreds and hundreds more of these everywhere. Not just, what would you, okay. Wit, what Sorry, would what? you, what would you say, Wit is the biggest barrier to doing that? To building co-op housing? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the government funding side of things. I think there's a lot of red tape and maybe a lot of municipalities don't know how to do it. Like the last the year, year council, they were saying, you know, there's a process. There definitely is. But if you've got a city like Kelowna that's trying to blow up and build high and not, you know, smartly, um, and again, mm. not saying anything bad about Kelowna, but they're not even thinking about that. They're doing these low-income, you know, uh, four-story uh condos and they're charging $1,800 for a two bedroom. And it's like, that's not affordable. Like no one's going to yeah. be able to afford that, you know? So I agree with your last caller. I agree with the counselor. Co-op housing is a huge, huge step forward. And someone's got to jump on that soon. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the call. Keep phoning me on this 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell. Ron in Delta. Hi. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I commend the counselor and his, and his uh, fellows on the, the work that they're doing in North Delta with the expansion and townhouses and the condos in there. My concern is the infrastructure. Seventy uh, Second mm. uh, Avenue from Scott Road all the way down to Highway Ninety One is backed up from two thirty in the afternoon till six thirty at night, Monday to Friday, and now they're and they're adding more and more cars and people. Yeah, what, what's yeah. What's the plan for the infrastructure in the area? I'm all for the housing. Yeah, but you you got to have movement too. Dylan Kruger. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Ron, for the call. And, and 72nd is, is an absolute mess. And, of course, that stems back from way back in the day when the, the government decided to stick uh, a highway and a bridge uh, through, uh, through North Delta, which means that we get a lot of that traffic coming in primarily from Surrey. Specifically on your question on 72nd, the city is, is actually working on a major upgrade for that uh, road, uh, which construction will be starting this year which hopefully will provide uh, better, better traffic flows uh, and accessibility, but it, but it is a big issue on 72nd. What I would say is we're not going to get out of the traffic situation that's associated with high-density housing uh, yeah. until we start doing high-density housing right, which means focusing our, our housing around you know, walkable communities where you can walk to and get your, to your shops and services and, and maybe even ditch the car when you need to. Well, you need, is a big problem. you need to densify around rapid transit corridors too, right? Yeah, we have coming in, yeah. which we're very excited for, the rapid bus on Scott Road, which will be in, in service in 2023, is going to significantly reduce travel time for people who are getting on the bus. And that's where we want to see most of our high-density housing in North Delta, because you can actually be able to, you, you can live your life, uh, if not car-free, maybe with less cars. Okay, I just got a minute left here. Rick in Delta. Hi, Rick. Yeah, I was just uh, calling to ask, the, with the co-op housing, who pays for the upgrades? Also, I wanted to mention that highway, it appears that's uh, getting improved on 72nd Avenue is going to cost Delta taxpayers $7 million. And uh, one of the major projects is under construction on 72nd currently. Those developers just made $1.85 million 
on another okay Rick, okay th- 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 thank thanks for the call i hate to step on you but we're just running out of time counselor we got 30 seconds here what about his comments about okay if you have a uh, co-op housing project who pays for the upgrades on it you know yeah, uh, every structure is different. What I'll say real quick, though, Mike, is I, I'm yes to everything. We need we need okay. more co-op housing. We need more townhouses. We need more purpose-built rental. We need more below-market rental. We need more of everything. We've had decades of undersupply that are coming to a head now in our region. Okay. Young people like myself don't have anywhere to live. Thanks for coming on today. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. The breaking news here at this hour, the province expanding that mask mandate for all kids, teachers and staff in B.C. public schools. So this will now cover kids in the in the youngest age bracket. So kids in kindergarten to grade three previously exempted from the mask rule now will be required to mask up in school. Dr. Bonnie Henry here just in the last few minutes also announcing that. Uh, they will start issuing monthly school-by-school COVID reports to parents. And the mask rule, the expanded mask rule, kicks in this Monday. Let's check in real quickly with Mike McCullough. He's a parent advocate with the Safe Schools Coalition BC. Mike, thanks for coming on. Good day, Mike. Mike, are you happy with what you heard there? Yeah, this seems like a great change. You know, I'm really happy to see this mask mandate extended down to the kindergartners. It should have been done from the get-go but, you know, better late than never, as they say. We have to, I think, applaud the brave trustees in Vancouver, Surrey, and Burnaby who went ahead with pushing the government to do this because I don't yeah. think without that uh, sort of spend of political capital that this would have happened. Yeah, we saw those individual school districts bring in their own rules and their own masking requirements for kids in kindergarten and up. So, yeah, I think that really did trigger uh, the move by Bonnie Henry today. Let's take a few phone calls here and see what people think about it. Derek on the line in Surrey. Hi, Derek. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? Well, I I agree with you. Everything you just said, uh, you said it very eloquently. And I just wanted to also pose the question to Dr. Henry that, you know, she continues to say, that the best way that we can protect our children is to um, to surround them with people, adults who are fully vaccinated. So my question is, why will she not mandate vaccinations for teachers who are going to be the people that will be working so closely with the children? Okay, Mike, is that something your group is calling for? Would you like to see mandatory vaccination for teachers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can look to history and in past we've had mandatory vaccinations for all kinds of things. People just lined up and did their part for society, you know. And so that's part of what we've uh, long been calling for for the province to, yeah. to get behind for everybody eligible. Yeah, that was conspicuously not part of the announcement here today, although the pressure rising here on that. It's interesting, you got the BC Teachers Federation, the Teachers Union here saying they, they're on board with that. They actually would go along with it. They wouldn't fight it. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Susan in Burnaby. Hi. 
Hi, how are you? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Hey, this should have been done from the get-go. I have uh, a, a son in, in school. He's in higher grade, but, I mean, it makes total sense. It's, it's unfortunate the parents had to go to this extent, but it's important. We're all at stake here. Okay, thanks for the call. Mike, do you think kids as young as kindergarten age will keep the mask on, or is it going to be like herding cats and trying to keep them, tell them to keep the mask on? <laughs> you never know. I mean, I think the best thing to do is to have that there as a mandate and to teach the kids. I mean, we would rely on our teachers to teach us all kinds of things, so I'm pretty sure teachers would be able to help guide our children in kindergarten up to grade three and this yeah. uh, type of thing. My son, who's in grade two now, he's been happily wearing his mask ever since the pandemic started in 2020. So, uh, you know, he learned while he was in kindergarten, and I think kindergarten kids uh, who are just new to it now will have absolutely no trouble with it. Okay, let's go to Sarah in Delta. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Hi. I just wanted to say that uh, teachers are considered mandatory workers just like our frontline workers uh, whenever the case is needed. And so uh, they should require a mandatory vaccination, just like all of our healthcare workers do now. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. I mean, we've seen some other jurisdictions, Mike, bring in mandatory vaccination for teachers. We've seen a lot of jurisdictions in the United States do that. I know the Toronto School Board, the Toronto School District brought it in. It's like the biggest school board in Canada. So we'll see if the pressure continues to rise here in BC to do the same thing. Randy on the line in Surrey. Hi, Randy. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike Hi. and Mike, actually. I had a quick question for uh, Mike as well. Um, I noticed that uh, one of the things you did to stress and address was music in the classrooms. I have a bit of a concern. I, there are children, like including mine, who aren't able to get vaccinated, who the school board will, in Surrey at least wants them to do recorder, play recorders. And I don't think that's such a good idea. Like, Do you think it's a good idea for the kids to be removing their masks, playing, breathing through you know, an instrument throughout the entire uh, classroom? Let me check with... Was, Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? We just got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, let's consider that COVID is airborne, and so anytime we remove our mask to blow out of an instrument or sing out loud, that we're releasing potentially infected droplets and aerosols from our mouths. Mike, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the latest developments in Ferry Creek now on Vancouver Island, the site of those confrontations between protesters opposed to old-growth logging and loggers harvesting trees in this hotly disputed area. Huge development this week. A B.C. Supreme Court judge refused to extend the injunction that had required protesters to stop locking logging roads in the area. Uh, the judge in the case, highly critical of police conduct in the area. We saw celebrations there by opponents of old-growth logging. They were dancing on the logging roads there, declaring victory. Meanwhile, though, the company involved here vowing to appeal the court judgment, and they say they will continue logging operations in the area. So this one is going to continue. Let's discuss now with our panel. We've got both sides of it for you. Stuart Muir, he's executive director of Resource Works, and he supports the logging going on there in the area. Stuart, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Mike. Okay, also on the line is Sapora Berman. Sapora is an environmental activist and writer, and she supports the protesters there in Ferry Creek. Sapora, thank you for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Okay, Sapora, let me go to you first. It was such a big week on this file here with that court judgment coming down. Very highly, uh, the, the extent, the injunction is ex has expired. Uh, the judge very critical of the police. Where are we at right now in this dispute, would you say? Well, I, I, I think where we're at is, 
is that we're still waiting for the BC government to make good on its promise to protect remaining at-risk old-growth forests, as the scientists have asked for and recommended uh, in the expert panel recommendations. I mean, the, the government has heard those recommendations. The recommendations called for immediate deferrals in at-risk old growth. And we're still seeing uh, you know, critical at-risk old growth being logged across the province. And I think in Ferry Creek, um, what we heard from Justice Thompson is confirmation that that citizens in Ferry Creek have been respectful, have been nonviolent. Um, he actually said respectful, intelligent, and peaceable by nature, good citizens um, who care intensely about the common good. And, and he was clear that the RCMP had overstepped um, and that there had been a lot of uh, citizens' rights violated and that the injunction was not renewed. So, yeah. yes, Peel Jones says it's still going to be logging. And I'm, I'm very concerned that we've heard, um, you know, yesterday that Peel Jones, since the injunction, has been digging up roads and putting in their own gates in the TFL to such an extent that the Ninanat village is experiencing flooding on their road and their only emergency access is, is now blocked. This logging in old growth needs to be stopped and the government needs to put in place long-term solutions. Okay, Stuart Muir, what do you say? Yeah, you know, the, the Diddy Duck First Nation that's blocked is is blocked into its territory because of vandalism by the protesters that support supports. They they poured uh, a, a, a cementing material into the lock and made it impossible for First Nations at a time when another road was flooded and there were high tides making it impassable. So the example she cites is actually the very opposite. But I think in terms of the high level, I mean, what happened this week is, yes, we did see the injunction that was allowing the... Uh, First Nation and the forest company to go about their lawful activities, uh, that changed. But the thing that didn't change, and I think the news from this, is that uh, Justice Thompson did point out in the strongest terms that the criminal code is what applies here. Because the criminal code makes it an offense to block or destroy a roadway, a highway, or damage property, or render property dangerous or useless. All of these things are what uh, uh, are, are being done out there by people who were violating the injunction. So um, thinking that they now have free reign to go and commit crimes is incorrect uh, as a conclusion from, from that. And what we're looking at now, I think, I mean, especially after yesterday, we saw the Pachidat First Nation uh, for the sixth time ask the protesters to leave because they're not welcomed by the First Nation on the very first Truth and Reconciliation Day. And once again, to be snubbed and ignored by outside protesters is I think uh, okay. it's hurtful timing, and it's okay. time to change that. Okay, on that point, uh, let me play a clip here from Premier John Horgan, and he does mention here that Pachidot First Nation uh, asking the protesters to leave their traditional territory, and then I'll get Sapporah's thoughts on that. So here is uh, John Horgan on this point. In the case of Ferry Creek, it's the Pachidat Nation, and they have said quite clearly that they do not want to see logging in Ferry Creek or in the Central Walbrand, and those areas have been deferred. That has not dissuaded the individuals who believe that it is their right to defy the law, is their right to disregard the five requests by the Pachidat to leave their territory, and they remain. Is this an intractable problem? Yes, it is. Does it frustrate me every single day? Okay, Premier John Horgan there. Supporter Berman, what about this point with the Pachidat First Nation, their elected council there, asked the protesters to leave and, the, and they don't leave? Why don't they leave? Why don't they do what the First Nation has asked them to do? 
Well, the Patriot have deferred logging in some of the areas of old growth. Those areas, I understand, are, are, are not being logged today, and certainly there are no um, forest and land defenders who are in those areas. There are other areas of critical old growth that are still being logged uh, by Teal Jones, and in fact, across this province. And I, I think the larger context here is that for decades, the logging industry and the government have ignored Indigenous rights and have been uh, doing old-growth logging on their territory that they don't support. And and now the industry and government are champions of Indigenous rights. I, I think that's a little rich. And I, I think we need to... We need to look at a different way to address reconciliation. Reconciliation cannot be achieved with bulldozers and threats of lawsuits. Free prior and informed consent means that all options would be out on the table and First Nations should be given the economic support they need to ensure full protection and that that's viable. And, you know, one more point, Mike, let's not forget that the Union of BC Indian Chiefs passed a resolution called the Elder Tree Declaration with Indigenous nations from across the province who are supporting protecting old growth. And government industry claimed to be abiding by First Nations desires. Yet I know there are a stack of letters from First Nations on the Premier's desk asking for old growth logging to stop in their territory, and they don't even get a call back. So no one's jumping to abide by their desires. Okay, Stuart Muir. Yeah, well, you know, I, I I think that the diversity of BC, mountains and river valleys and and deltas, all of these different areas, you have over 200 First Nations around the province. They all have different realities. Many, many of them, more than 100 of them, have different kinds of forest businesses, many of which do rely on a portion of old growth as the input so they can have a successful business. The idea of taking that away from them at at the very moment where we have historic legislation, both in BC and federally, to implement the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People is, is I think, um, callous and short-sighted. What we need to do is ensure that all of these many, many processes around the province to uh, close any gaps, you know, where we need to rebalance the, the, the timber supply because there are issues. And let me be clear, there are real issues here with old growth management, but it doesn't mean that all of the solutions being proposed by the most extreme voices, which is what Ferry Creek is, should be adopted. Okay, so Stuart, let me, Stuart, hey Stuart, let me ask you this. So you don't believe that old growth logging should be banned completely in BC? You think that some old growth trees, some of these ancient trees should still be available to be cut down, right? Well, old growth trees aren't necessarily ancient trees. I'm not sure what an ancient well, tree is, but well, I'm, I'm, well, well, let me ask Sapora. Sapora, how do you how do you define an old growth tree? How old is it? It's not about just the age. It's also about the ecosystem itself, and and sure, and that's why the scientists have identified high productivity at risk old growth. And what they've said very clearly is that we need logging deferrals in the at risk old growth, and they've developed maps for that. And and that and that actually means that uh, and they've also said, to be clear, the leading scientists have said the majority of the remaining at risk old growth forests are still unprotected and need to be protected. They are underrepresented in protected areas. And I'm reading from the expert panel report. This is an exciting historic day, everyone. Four o'clock. The injunction ended today. RCMP are packing up. They are just beyond these gates. They are taking their tarps. They are taking their... (laughs) They they are taking out all of their vehicles and they are leaving. And we are here celebrating. 
Yes, RCMP, the world is watching you. And guess what? The injunction is over. Okay, that was the sound at the Ferry Creek blockade site this week after that court injunction was lifted by the judge involved in this case, and they were very happy about that. We're continuing to discuss the standoff here in Ferry Creek with my guest, Stuart Muir, a supporter of Berman. See, I fit in a call here. Dev calling from Vancouver Island. Hi. Hi. Please let let me make my point, Mike. Um, I've been in the forest industry. My family has for generations, and I can tell you that it's supported communities. It's paid for hospitals. It's paid for roads. At a time when we need to listen to First Nations like Ferry Creek, and we're making such huge progress, we have people like Miss Berman and her little group that all of a sudden want to go back to colonial times, and let's, we're not going to listen to them. We're, we're going to do what we want to do. Well, here's my thing, Miss Berman. If people listen to you, the entire province would be shut down, and you don't like other divergent points of view. Like a good socialist, you ignore them. So, okay, let me, let me respond, Sapora. It's it's interesting that the caller calls this our little group. Over a thousand citizens in British Columbia have been arrested in Ferry Creek, including scientists and engineers and forestry workers, uh, professors, doctors, teachers. Thousands and thousands of people have come. And in fact, the majority of British Columbians in the polls want to see an end to old growth logging. That doesn't mean an end to the forest industry. And, and I agree. Forestry has fed families in British Columbia and will continue to. But it will only continue to if we move to a, a value and not a volume model. We need to get more jobs per tree cut. We need economic diversification models to support industry. And denying that we have to stop logging old growth isn't going to help. It's just going to okay. punt the problem down the road. Okay, Stuart Muir. Yeah, you know, one thing that concerns me here is the science is being lost. Because although it's true that some scientists who are aligned with supporters movement have published papers and maps and they talk about those and all over social media. They've hired lots of public relations spin doctors to get that out there. When you talk to the scientists in the universities in forestry, in government, in industry, in First Nations, they, they employ forest scientists, so do municipalities, you get a very different picture. And if more people heard that story, what they would understand is there's a quite a large, much larger supply of old growth than is claimed by some. And also the way it's being managed is actually very different from the picture some people may have 1970s forestry it's just not like that practices have improved so much and the other thing is that old growth is willfully a part of what many first nations do harvest like the huea in tfl 44 they actually own part of that forest there's many first nations on vancouver island alone who are in businesses that rely on old growth and they're right now perfectly fine with that because they know it's sustainable okay sapora what do you say to that the scientists that I'm referring to are part of the government's own expert panel on old growth. And in that report, they said very quick, very clearly that we need immediate action to protect remaining at-risk at old growth, to defer logging in old forests where ecosystems are at risk of irreversible biodiversity loss. And, you know, the larger picture here is that mm. we're, I, I think, Stuart, that you're ignoring the urgency of the ecological crisis and the growing threat of climate change. The science is very clear, not only in British Columbia, but around the world, that we need to protect the old growth forests we have left. We can't, as a province, declare a climate emergency and then log the old growth because the old growth is actually the climate solution that already is, exists. These okay. forests are essential to maintaining well, well, our water and a stable climate. You, you know, you're, you're bringing up the, I, I call it the butter versus margarine debate because it's, 
it's, it's equally uh, studied by academic uh, forest scientists and found that having replanted forests and new trees, which grow faster and absorb more carbon, is an essential part of how you manage forests. And we plant in BC three trees for everyone that's cut down. And that then ensures that the carbon cycle is happening. So, I mean, that, that's a scientific debate. It, it grinds on. Someone will come up with another report one day. But I think the key thing here is that most scientists who are based at universities do not agree with the extreme positions that Zipporah is pushing. Old growth is not about to run out. Okay. That is just a flat myth. Okay, we only got so, two minutes. So we have two minutes. We get it. You have a minute. You have a minute, uh, Sapora. Yes, you got one minute. Go ahead. So, what we're hearing from Stuart Muir and ResourceWorks is a form of climate denial, and they did it for decades. Uh, the industry did it for decades on climate science, saying there was a question, and that's why we're in this terrible situation now because they paralyzed governments with this supposed question about whether climate change was happening. And now we're experiencing the fires and the heat domes. This is this is old growth denial is that same thing. Scientists from the United Nations to our own scientists in BC are calling for urgent protection of the world's remaining primary and old growth forests in order to stabilize the climate, in order for us to have clean water. And we can do that and maintain healthy industry in BC, but only if we start now, because when these forests, when these thousand year old trees are gone, they are gone forever, and they okay. store a lot more carbon mm -hmm. than new trees than we're going to plant today. Stuart, you got, you got 30 seconds here to wrap it up. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say when you hear the Premier, he's talking about processes that are happening inside the, the B.C. government. Uh, the, the moves that were made last September to actually follow the recommendations of the old group growth review panel were followed, even though uh, environmentalists like Sephora don't want to acknowledge that that did happen. Big trees were protected by new legislation. So to say there's some sort of denialism here is, frankly, insulting, and it's incorrect. We need okay. to respect the science. Okay, I want to thank both of you for a good conversation once again. I'm very grateful for both of you being on this show. So my great thanks to both of you. Stuart Muir from ResourceWorks, Sapora Berman. Uh, she's an environmental activist and writer. Thanks to both. Uh, let's talk about uh, this week's very sad announcement, I thought, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about the ivory-billed woodpecker. And what a beautiful, majestic bird this is, at least in the photos that I've seen. This large woodpecker with that vivid red crest officially declared extinct this week, or at least the Wildlife Service proposing to add it to the extinction list. And very sad news, especially for those who hope that a handful of these birds might still be out there living in remote patches of, of the U.S. South. Uh, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declaring this week that despite decades of extensive sur surveys hoping to find these birds, they had not located any primary threats leading to its extinction were the loss of mature forest habitat and collection. Have a listen to this now. You're going to hear the sound here of an ivory-billed woodpecker. This was recorded in 1935. Have a listen to this. Oh, that's awesome. That's a very distinctive call there. Let's uh, speak to one of North America's top ornithologists about this now, Professor John Fitzpatrick. He is the Director Emeritus of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University. And I, I feel honored to welcome him to the show. John, thank you for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Uh, great to be with you. 
Okay, what do you think about this news from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, this week about this about the ivory-billed woodpecker? What did you, what went through your mind when you heard that this week? Yeah, well, it's a great question. It's not completely unexpected, obviously, because uh, the bird has not been uh, unquestionably or definitively photographed since the 1940s in the U.S. and in 1955 in Cuba. Uh, so it's a long time to to, uh, to wait in between definitive sightings. There are, in the case of the ivory bill, uh, of course, a couple of which we were involved with ourselves, kind of continuing uh, lines of evidence that uh, that the small numbers or individual scattered birds may still exist on in through into the 21st century. Um, so my uh, my sense, and you accurately uh, stated in your intro that the Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing to do this uh, listing. They have a 60-day period in which uh, to get public and scientific comment uh, before they do it officially. Right. My view is that it's premature, uh, not because I'm certain that it exists, because indeed it may not. But I think uh, I have a lot of respect for the uh, endangered species list that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service prepares and methodically manages. And uh, when we make the decision to lower the flag on a species and declare it extinct, we really ought to be certain of that. Yeah. And certainty about absence is really difficult. Uh, so in a case like the woodpecker, especially as it uh, stands as a flagship for a you know, a major region of uh, of North America, which we destroyed, but which we're working hard to recover. Um, I think it's useful to keep a species that may still exist uh, on that list, in part just as a, as again, a flagship for uh, work mm. that is still needs to be done uh, for restoring the ecosystem. When was the last confirmed sighting of an ivory-billed woodpecker? Well, it depends on what you mean by confirmed, uh, and it depends on your your opinion about evidence. And uh, uh, I will say that the last indisputable record of ivory-billed woodpecker uh, was in 1944. There was a single female uh, left in the uh, famous place called the Singer Tract in northeastern Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Cuba, the birds were uh, there were several different pairs of birds known into the early 50s. The last photograph taken by George Lamb was 1955. So that's the last point at which the bird has ever been definitively photographed. Now there are uh, other lines of evidence that suggest the woodpecker has existed since then. Uh, there was a feather that was recovered from a nest in which two biologists had observed what they identified as the ivory bill in Florida in uh, 1968. Um, and then, of course, there are, uh, there are these records that uh, came out from eastern Arkansas in 2004, 2005, including uh, video and some acoustic evidence that many right. of us regard as, uh, as, as reliable evidence that there was a single bird there. Yes, I I do recall some excitement when uh, over the years when some videos would occasionally emerge that right. perhaps someone had taken a photo of an ivory-billed woodpecker. Others disputed that and said, "Well, no, maybe it's a pileated woodpecker or another similar species." But do right. you think? Uh, and I know that that your Cornell, your lab there at Cornell University, was involved in some of those some of those searches. We um, were indeed. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sadly, we just got a couple of minutes left here. But sure. Can you yeah, tell me no about problem. the work? We, uh, the 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 basic story is that. 
a bird uh, was seen uh, repeatedly over a period of several months in eastern Arkansas, and a uh, a, a um, engineer from Little Rock, Arkansas, actually got a video, seven-second-long video, in which uh, at several different angles uh, we analyzed that video and uh, concluded that it was a video of an Iverbill woodpecker. Wow. Unfortunately, it uh, it wasn't clear enough to be uh, you know regarded as definitive, and uh, indeed there are other interpretations of that. So that one has to be chalked up to uh, debatable evidence. Would you say in in the minute we got left here, Doctor Fitzpatrick, and I I want to ask you like in your gut, do you have a gut feeling that it's out there? And I know you're a scientist, so you go by evidence, not gut feelings. But right. do you do you think in your heart that maybe it's still it's still out there? It still exists. That's a fair question, and the way I would answer it is I have a gut feeling that it might. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's really important to make, make, make it clear that it might not. Yeah. Yes. But I think that to declare a species extinct, we need more definitive evidence that it is, in fact, gone. And I don't think we're quite past that threshold yet. Okay, well, I hope that, obviously, that maybe they do find find these birds somewhere. I mean, you know, parts of the U.S. South, highly developed part of the, the United States, I mean, there are, are there some pockets of real dense wilderness that maybe they might be hiding in there? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the region probably that's most likely is the original uh, area of that uh, Arkansas encounter, which is close to a 1,000 square miles of forest, some of which yeah. very uh, difficult to access. Uh, great habitat and actually getting better as we speak because it's being protected. Uh, so, yeah, there are uh, places in Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, and Arkansas where it's not impossible that uh, lingering individuals exist. I just think we're a decade or two away from having to declare that this flag has finally got to be buried. Okay. Well, I hope maybe one turns up one of these days. I'm sure you do, too. Thank you very much for coming on today. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.